Wouldn't it be nice if we could just predict what would happen tomorrow, the day after, next week, next month, next year, 2019, and wouldn't it be nice if we could just open the book, oh yeah, 2021, uh, January, whatever, or October 6th, this is what's going to happen. Wouldn't it be nice if we had access to the, to the future? We don't. Some people try. Read horoscopes, all kinds of nonsense that they think is going to help them. Or, I don't know if they really believe that, though. I don't know if anybody really believes that stuff. They, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I wonder a little bit, how many people here would have this? I read the horoscope. And it is a horoscope, and it should be horror. I think it's bad. We shouldn't read stuff like that. This morning we're beginning a new sermon series on the book of Revelation. And I know how, how it is with this book. I've talked to many people, and they already come with their preconceived ideas or agendas sometimes. Others are genuinely just questioning, what does this mean? I'll tell you right now, I don't know. I know some things that it means, and I'll give you this and then some say, oh, I'm disappointed in my pastor, he doesn't really know. I do know a few things about the book of Revelation, and it's going to come out as I talk, as we preach. And I'm going to be doing most of the preaching, Lowell's going to do one of the sermons. So the next six Sundays, this is what it's going to be about. And it will not be an in-depth, word-for-word, expository preaching, what this word means, what that word means. We'll do a little bit of that, but mostly, what's this whole book trying to do? Why was it written? Where is it taking us? Is there such a thing as knowing the future? Well, not for humans. But God has, in, in certain places, ways, and times, revealed the future. And if you read the, the, the Bible in itself, it's 66 books, written over uh, thousands of years. Some of the old books, they wrote about things that were supposed to happen in the future, and they did. So there were prophecies that literally happened. But in reality, you and I have no idea what's going to happen November of next this year, next year. We have no idea. How many of you of us knew last year that there would be a hurricane smashing through Florida this fall? We didn't know that. And some things that we just think are, are un- impossible that can't happen do happen. We just know so very little about the future. None of us knows what 2019 will bring. At least, I think we, if we're honest, we say we don't know. But we know time is passing. Time is not static. It's, it's moving. There's only one who has time in his hand, and that's God. In the past, we have preached, in some, to some extent, uh, out of the book of Revelation, we preached out of Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And that was basically what the uh, sermon, uh, the sermon's based on what the Holy Spirit was saying to the churches of, his, of John's time. The Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. And so that was very practical stuff for the church, churches of Asia during John's time. But then in chapter 4, and we're not going to start reading yet, just in a few minutes, we'll start reading. In chapter 4, there's this, this window, this, this um, vision that John receives. And all kinds of things are put on the screen, so to speak, that are str- were maybe strange to him. We're not sure if they were strange to him, but strange to us for sure. We must know, understand a few things about this book before we dig into it. This book was written by a man who was perhaps old in age. We believe he was old at this time during a very, very difficult and challenging season of life or in the season of the church. The Jews had by this time, as we believe, lost their temple. Jerusalem possibly destroyed. 
and the Romans were very hard, very cruel, very brutal to anybody who in any way, shape, or form was a threat to their way of life. And yet somehow the Church of Jesus Christ was a vigorous, vibrant, strong force in most places. In the first three chapters you find there was problems, but the church itself was strong and it was being severely opposed. And the reason the church was so opposed by the government, by society in general, was because of the position the church held. The church held this idea of Jesus Lord. That's what the church believed, that's what they practiced, that's what they preached, and that did not sit well. And of course, Jesus being Lord meant that the things he taught superseded everything society would have us believe in their time. And so, society was morally corrupt, it was, it was self-focused, it was um, very decadent. And into that social boiling cauldron of opposition and chaos, the church had to speak and the Apostle John received this vision. We must also remember when John wrote this, he was not thinking, hmm, 2,000 years from now, this is what they'll need to know. That was not even on the radar in his mind. What he was writing was, this is what God is telling me, I need to tell the churches of, of Asia, and so that's why he wrote the book of Revelation. But of course, we also know that it, these principles are for all time for us today too. As I mentioned earlier, we will not be reading the first three chapters in this sermon series. We've preached on that before. You may be able to find it online. I wouldn't even know where it is right now, but it's online in our sermon database somewhere. The words in this book were written for the Church of Jesus Christ at that time, but also for us today, and what it means for us today. And so with that, I would like you to just, let's start reading out of Revelation chapter 4, beginning verse 1. You'll see it on the slides here. We'll go through the whole chapter. Revelation chapter 4, beginning verse 1, and this is John's vision that he received from, from God as he was on the island of Patmos as a prisoner. It says, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven, someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like a, had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day, and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come. Whenever the living beings gave glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who, all, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down and worship him, worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before him and they say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. One of the negatives to preaching a sermon series on a book like this is you need 20 Sundays, not six. Or more. 
And there's so much here, we can't possibly even begin to dig into it much except to just briefly pick out what the main point is. Heaven is a place of unimaginable glory. That's one thing he sees. The beauty and splendor is beyond anything that can ever be imagined on earth. We may wonder, what are all these, these stones, these symbols of these stones, what do they all mean, the different colors and so on? Why these word pictures? Well, that's what we as humans understand. Commentators do spend a lot of time and energy and research in giving detailed description of what each stone stands for, and I did read some of that, and I'm not saying they're wrong. But one thing comes out is, the Spirit wanted John to see and understand the splendor, the glory, and the majesty of heaven. Heaven will be beautiful, glorious. But there's something else here. It's an active place. A place of action. That kind of hit me as I was going through this. And I think sometimes people think, well, when I get to heaven, we'll just play harps and we'll just sit and do nothing. That's not the case at all. Heaven is a very active place. I don't want to use the word busy. Young adults know why. Because we've been talking about that as young adults. But there's going to be a lot of action in heaven. But it's going to be good. It's going to be godly. It's going to be glorifying. It's going to be good activity, satisfying activity, fulfilling activity. It's almost like a good addiction. The more you do it, the more you enjoy it, the more you want it. We just can't, as human beings, begin to imagine what this will be like. We just see, with our limited minds, a little bit of what John is saying here. But all of this points to one purpose and one purpose only. It's to God and His glory. That's what we're created for. That's what we do. And in that, we find our fulfillment our satisfaction, our purpose, and our meaning. He is worshipped. He is recognized as Lord, as God, as Creator. And in chapter 5, he moves on. And we call something interestingly happens. We won't read it just yet, but I just want to make a mention. Heaven is a place of order. You know, we talked a little bit about, um, Phil mentioned in this prayer about um, when disasters happen and so on. You know, God often gets the blame for stuff that goes wrong, whether it's a hurricane or someone loved one dies or there's violence, there's war, and we say, well, where's God in all of this? Why did God not do something? If God is God, why did He not stop this? If He's God, why does He not take better care of us? What we're forgetting is we're missing the point. God has done everything that needed to be done, but when He created humanity, He made us in His image capable of glory and worship and honor toward Him. What did we do? We know what Adam and Eve did, what we've been doing since. We take that for our own ends, for our own selves. He has not been silent. It's very evident God is not detached. He's not removed from what's going on. So let's begin reading chapter 5. There's records that are kept. Things are monitored. Things are taken care of. Let's read chapter 5, starting verse 1. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who's sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to just open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open, and open the scroll and read it. But one of the twenty-four elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory. He's, he's worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but now was standing between the throne and the four living beings among the twenty-four elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stopped, he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. 
And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and held golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, your blood was has ra- and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people for- and nation. And you've caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again. And I heard the voice of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of living beings and the elders. And they sang in mighty, a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who is slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power to the, belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders all fell down, fell down and worshipped the Lamb. Again, the focus is God. It's a powerful, powerful word picture. And interesting how this unfolds itself. One of the things that this scroll represents is more than just a scroll. It's a record. It's written down what will come. And God is in control of time. He holds it in His hand. A scroll that has been recorded and sealed and He knows what's going to happen. And he's sitting on the throne in his right hand, he has this in his hand. And it's all contained in there. I think that picture is just amazing. The scriptures say the scroll is sealed, no one's found who can open the scroll. And John begins to weep and then says, oh wait, don't weep, there's somebody who's been found. And we know it's Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, he says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the one who we have to deal with in the end. We can reject him here now. We can do that. That's our choice. But we will deal with him one day. He sees a lamb that, John sees a lamb that looks like it's been slaughtered, but is now is alive. And one commentator mentioned these four living beings that are represented there, that's representing the earth. And so Jesus is encompassing everything. The horns and eyes, they represent authority and fullness. That's the number seven there. We could go on and on about these details, but that's not the point of our sermon this morning. But there's a lot of worship, a lot of recognizing who God is. One thing that just kind of stuck to me as I was going through this, and wait a minute, these bowls of incense that they're carrying, those are prayers. Do prayers have substance? Can they be put on our shelf like a, like a container? Is there such a thing as a truckload of prayer? If that's the case, then I wonder how big the warehouses full of prayers would be in the Chinese churches that are struggling in North Korea and, and Asia, or maybe there are some North America who don't spend as much time in prayer. Maybe we're impoverished that way. But these, these elders have these containers, these censers, and the incense, and these are the prayers of the saints. Amazing. And they're worshiping, they're giving honor and recognition to the Lamb. So the Lamb holds complete ownership of everything. He has authority. He has power. And we are His property. But again, the focus is on worship and praise. And the huge angel crowds, they're shouting and they're praising. So far, we've mainly seen how God deals and works out His will in creation. And it continues. And it's all good. But it doesn't stay good. Let's, let's remember that. This is not about doom and gloom. But it doesn't stay good. If we think this world's a great place, God made it a great place, but it hasn't turned out that way. For us, it's become a bad place, full of sin and destruction. And so something else happens here. God is coming to judge. 
That's what's going to happen. He's done it before, and he'll do it again. I mentioned before that God gets the blame for a lot of stuff that goes wrong in this world. Our problem is we don't have a complete view or the right view. Our view is very limited. But we have to be honest and confess, even his judgments are holy. There's never an unholy judgment on sin. Let's just pause for a moment, let that sink in. When God confronts, he deals and removes sin, he deals with it, he is not unjust. And in this scroll, he has the whole of, the whole of time from creation to, till eternity, he has everything in that scroll. And let's read verse, chapter 6, beginning verse 1. As I watched, the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll, then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come! I looked up and saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out, he rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, Come, and then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. There was war and slaughter everywhere. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, Come. I looked up and saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from the, among the four living beings say, A loaf of wheat, a bread, or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay, and don't waste the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, Come. I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful to their testimony. In their testimony. Then they shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they've done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky, then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll and all of the, all of the mountains and islands were removed from their places. Then every one, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person, all hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Again, we cannot do justice in one morning to all of these passages, but again, a snapshot in time of what is coming. And John saw this. And I will say there's so much I do not understand, and I never will understand. But we do, I just want to again summarize God's holding the scroll and the lamb is breaking the seals and it's revealed what's inside and it doesn't look pretty. There's deception, the white horse. There's bloodshed, the red horse. There's death and conquering and pestilence and sickness, the black horse and the pale horse. All caused by sin. Horses represent power. And each one as it's revealed is progressively worse. And it's coming from the scroll, the seals, which Jesus is breaking. And it's in God's hand, now Jesus holds it in his hand. What's noteworthy, and we should remember in all of this, is God is still in control at all times. Even worldly powers have their limitations, can only go as far as he allows them. We don't understand it fully. But from this passage, this is one of them, 
it sometimes feels in our world like humans are in control, but in this passage we see they're not. What's interesting is the scroll is not just about doom and gloom, there's also some exciting things. God's people are even mentioned. But they're doing something which is strange. They're shouting for vengeance. I struggle with that a little bit, I have to be honest. What does it mean? See, just because people have been killed for their loyalty to Jesus, that, that does not mean it's over. Their suffering is over, but they have not, they're not forgotten. Their death is not in vain. Their death is recorded. Their death will not go unavenged. Yes, you heard that right. God is going to exact punishment. He's going to exact a payment for the sin that goes on in the world for all people who reject and refuse Him. As much as we're commanded to love, and we should always love, and God is love, it's also equally important to remember sin will receive its just punishment. And it will not go forgotten. Justice will come. They're asking when God says, just a little bit more patience. It's all part of that scroll. I know it sounds very contrary to modern gospel preaching perhaps, but this is the vision that John received when he was pastoring the church in Asia. The saints are not forgotten. Their cries are heard. They're given white robes and told to be just a little bit more patient, patient for a little longer. Their fellow brothers would also join them, some of them, and then the time would, would come. Not everybody dies a martyr's death, not nearly. Even John himself, as far as the records show, that he probably was not killed. He died a natural death. But his life wasn't easy. But then there's, there's something in, in the sixth seal, verse 12 and on, that's different. It's not politics. It's not economics. It's not social. It's not religious. It's nature. Even nature God holds in his hand. Nature, it seems, comes unglued at the seams. It goes haywire. The forces of the universe become unbalanced and shake. The lesson is God is incomplete. An absolute, total control. That's one of the things we can take from this book. And what is so very sobering is that people at some point in time become aware. They recognize, they realize. And as Paul writes in one of his letters, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. That does not mean every knee will be saved or every tongue will be saved. Everybody will recognize Jesus when they see him. They cry out to be covered by the mountains. Who can, who can stand? It's, it's too late for them. The whole earth will recognize. doesn't mean they will accept it. But we, today, we are in the day of grace. For us, it's not too late. But then John is given more and the scene, shift, the scene shifts to earth. Let's read verse chapter 7. And again, these are, these are numbers. And I don't know what they all mean, but we'll read through it and then uh, make a comment here about this. It says in chapter 7, beginning verse 1, Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. He shouted to these four angels who had been given power to harm land and sea, Wait! Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we've placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. From Judah, 12,000. From Reuben, 12,000. From Gad, 12,000. From Asher, 12,000. From Naphtali, 12,000. From Manasseh, 12,000. From Simeon, 12,000. From Levi, 12,000. From Issachar, 12,000. From Zebulun, 12,000. From Joseph, 12,000. From Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I saw a vast crowd. So it's not just them, but a vast crowd. Verse 9. Too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne before the Lamb. 
They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. They were shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground worshipped God. They sang, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Then one of the twenty-four elders asked me, Who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And I said, Sir, you, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the Lamb of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the passage we want to focus on this morning. There's way too much here that we could possibly cover even in a couple of hours. But what we do see is this. God is in charge. God is in control. And that must have been a great comfort for John, and it should be a comfort for us. It doesn't always look like God is in charge or God is in control. If we look at our world, the world is coming unglued in so many ways, in so many areas, and people are are worried, they're fearful. We don't have to be. God is still in control. The other thing is, the focus never changes. It's always God. God is worshipped, God is glorified, and He's honored. That should be our focus too. No matter how difficult it gets, Jesus is in control. He holds the scroll. He holds the universe. He holds politics. He all holds everything in His hand, even our suffering. But what is also clear, this world is not going to become a better place. I'm not saying this to say our politicians shouldn't work toward justice and shouldn't work toward caring for, making sure we have a good community. But the world is not going to become a better place. Violence and bloodshed will continue. In fact, as, the, as Christ's coming is getting closer, it will become worse. Evil will come in increasing waves, but it will not triumph. All the struggles and trials of life will not gain the upper hand. We can pray and the prayers are stored in heaven. God will be victorious. So what is this? this so, what, so what's the deal for us today? What, is, what difference does this make? You know how Paul writes how we should live with eternity in mind? Paul writes we should live with eternity in mind. Let's do that. I don't know what your week is like. I don't know what your was like or what your week will be like. But live with eternity in mind. Not everybody who lived last week is living this week. We don't get another lap around the track if we miss it the first time. Let's serve Jesus as Lord. In a day and age when it becomes increasingly unpopular to worship Jesus, we need to remind ourselves, others have gone on before, they've paid the price, they've stayed faithful. Yes, today in the world people are still suffering for their faith. Maybe not so much in Canada, although it's here in some levels, but it's here, but not as much. We're called to suffer, let's suffer well. So instead of worrying in what the future holds and and reading horoscopes and, and all kinds of stuff and what will next year bring, let's ask this question. How's my relationship with Jesus? Let's ask that question. He holds eternity in His hands. He holds politics, social systems, the, the universe. He holds our life. He died on the cross to save us. He's the Lamb that was killed, was slain, and He's risen to life. He's in control. He's in charge. And He's recognized. 
God gave His Son to die for our sins. That's His gift to us. Let's live in that grace. He's given you and I the opportunity today to live by His teachings, to be part of His kingdom. He is a gracious, loving, merciful God. And yes, He's also just and an angry God in the relationship to sin. He will never tolerate it. And in the end, all those who become His enemies, or who are His enemies, they will suffer that fate. So may we be faithful in serving a living God, the Son Jesus Christ, and when our time comes to meet Him, we will be prepared. Let's live in relationship. Let's have a love relationship with Jesus. Let's follow Him. And follow Him well. It's an awesome thing to think that we're part of this story. 2,000 years is like a snap of a finger to God. He holds eternity in His hands. He holds time in His hands. And this scroll, this thing called time, He has it in His hands. We get to be blessed to be part of that. May we live well. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word to us. The, the story in Revelation is just incredible. It, so much of it is so hard to understand, and frankly, we don't understand it. But we do understand a few things. One is that you, that you win. You're glorified. In the end, you're victorious. We also see that you're worshipped. And we get to be part of that. We also see tragically the result when you are rejected. It's all there. Help us, Lord Jesus, to serve you and serve you well. May we be part of your kingdom. And when our time comes, may we join you in your kingdom in heaven. In Jesus' name.